Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss the findings of the Industrial Strategy Council's final annual report. I'm Gemma Tetlo, the IFG's Chief Economist, and it's a pleasure for us to be hosting this event today. The government's approach to supply-side policies, whether we call that an industrial strategy or a plan for growth, is something that will be crucial to the UK's prosperity as we hopefully emerge from the shadow of coronavirus. And it's a topic that we here at the Institute for Government have a deep interest in, and one of those areas where government can make a substantive difference, but only if policy is designed and implemented effectively. So I'm delighted to be joined today by three extremely knowledgeable speakers to discuss these issues. We have Andy Haldane, who, as well as chairing the Industrial Strategy Council, is the Bank of England's chief economist and a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. We also have Dame Vivian Hunt, another member of the Industrial Strategy Council and also the managing partner for McKinsey & Co UK and Ireland. She advises corporate, public and third sector clients on topics of performance, improvement, productivity growth and leadership and has previously been named the most influential black woman in Britain, one of the top 25 consultants in the world, one of the 30 most influential people in the City of London. And finally, we have my colleague Giles Wilkes, who's now a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and previously advised both Vince Cable and Theresa May on industrial and economic policy. Please do start sending in your questions via the Q&A function that's now open. Um, if you'd like to, please tell us your name and where you're uh, tuning in from today. It'd be interesting to know who we're reaching. We will be live tweeting this event from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG economy. So please do follow and tweet along. Today's event is on the record and we will be posting video and sound recording of this event on our website within 24 hours. So without further ado, let me hand over to Andy for a brief pricey of today's reports. Well, Gemma, thank you for that kind uh, introduction. Um, and thank you also to the Institute for Government for hosting us again uh, this year. An afternoon to, to everyone uh, on the call. Uh, this is the second annual report of the Industrial Strategy Council, and also its last, as Gemma mentioned, as the Council ceases at the end of this month. The Council was set up in 2018 to provide expert and independent oversight of the government's 2017 industrial strategy, uh, and that in turn aimed to improve productivity and prosperity uh, right across the whole of the UK. That industrial strategy has now been replaced uh, by the Plan for Growth published last month, and I shall return to that uh, in just a second. Uh, the annual report itself was published uh, this morning, uh, and on the reasonable assumption that few, if any of you, have had a chance to read it yet, let me summarise some of its key points for you now. The report comprises two of which I think I can cover briefly. Section two of the report discusses how prospects for productivity have been reshaped by the COVID crisis. The crisis has clearly had a dramatic impact on how and where we work, on how and where we spend, and on how businesses operate. The pandemic has caused considerable hardship for many households and many businesses across many countries. But as the report discusses, the crisis also opens up possibilities to pivot our behaviours, our businesses and our economies in ways which could improve both productivity and indeed well-being. For example, a hybrid model of working from home, carefully crafted, 
could boost both productivity and well-being for both individuals and organizations. A digital transformation of business, the like of which we've seen over the past year, could do both too, were it to continue apace. And those two behavioral shifts by workers and by companies could in turn uh, help when it comes to leveling up some of the economy's poorer regions. So as we collectively recover from COVID, the council hopes these opportunities to boost wealth and to boost well-being uh, can be seized. If I can jump to um, section four of the report, um, this summarizes uh, progress on implementing the 2017 industrial strategy, while section five of the report uh, summarizes the work of the council over the past two years. Now, some of you may recall that last year we highlighted the 142 policies contained within the 2017 industrial strategy and reported good progress on some and rather more mixed progress on some of the others. A year on, we now found around 60% of those policies in the 2017 strategy are now complete. And of those remaining, around 25% are work in progress or delayed. And the remaining 15%, we've been able to find any details really on progress. With the 2017 industrial strategy now having been succeeded by the plan for growth, the council thinks that either clarity or closure of those outstanding policies is now necessary as a matter of good uh, governance. The council's also publishing today, alongside the annual report, a case study of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine program, a hugely successful example of industrial strategy from which we believe uh, useful lessons for the future can be learned. My op-ed in today's FT sets out some of the headline lessons for industrial policy, uh, which include first, the crucial role of a clear and singular mission led from the very top of government. Uh, second, the importance of managing the supply chain end to end, harnessing and coordinating the actions both of different government departments and of the public, private and voluntary sectors in line with their respective comparative advantages. Third, the crucial role of public procurement and public insurance in catalyzing private sector innovation and investment, particularly in socially beneficial projects, so-called advanced market commitments. And finally, the importance of building on pre-existing comparative strengths in science and in industry, established typically over many years through research funding and institution building. So in the UK, it's strength in life sciences and vaccines research, which was supported by the government's 2017 industrial strategy, including through two sector deals, was a crucial ingredient in the vaccine success story. The bulk of my comments today, though, are going to focus on section three of the annual report, which building on the council's extensive research and indeed on the progress made by the 2017 industrial strategy, considers what lessons can be learned for the government's new plan for growth. Now, to be clear, the council's offering these thoughts constructively, 
with the aim of improving the effectiveness and thereby increasing the chances of this plan succeeding. In assessing the plan, the councils used the same three success criteria it applied to, its, to the 2017 industrial strategy, namely scale, longevity uh, and coordination. And doing so leads the council to make 10 recommendations, a balanced scorecard, if you like, pointing out areas where there's been real progress, as well as areas where further uh, attention will we think be required for the plan to succeed. I won't go through all 10 points, but let me point, pick out one or two of the few key ones. There's much in the plan for growth that is very positive and which strongly echoes the messages the council itself has been giving, including in last year's annual report. Those positives include first, the importance of a clear, costed and large scale strategy for improving the UK's infrastructure, a strategy independently overseen by the National Infrastructure Commission. Second, the focus on developing skills and within that, the greater emphasis placed on vocational skills and on lifelong learning, both of which have been highlighted by the council previously as crucial for future growth. Third, innovation, where ambitious in initiatives such as the new ARIA, the Advanced Research and Inventions Agency, and the Help to Grow initiative should begin to address the productivity problems the council and others have identified, both pushing the technological frontier and, as importantly, helping more firms to reach this frontier. Fourth and finally, net zero, where through its 10-point plan, the government has made significant progress over the past year in fleshing out its roadmap to this uh, most vital of destinations. If I turn to the lessons, let me highlight five. First, last year, the council criticized the 2017 industrial strategy for spreading itself too thinly across 142 separate initiatives. At the last count, the plan for growth contained around 180 policies, and that includes 14 proposals to develop a follow-up strategy, which may itself contain further initiatives. The Council believes this degree of jam spreading is not a recipe for prioritisation, scale and success. And based on past experience, these it thinks are essential ingredients for that success. Second, the plan for growth focuses on the three pillars of infrastructure, skills and innovation. And that's welcome as these are well-known necessary conditions for growth. But it's also well established empirically and historically that they are not sufficient ones. And that's why in its own evaluation work, the council drew on a wider set of capitals, including natural capital and social capital and institutional capital. And the council recommends that the plan for growth might also seek to widen its sites to, to recognise these wider and key drivers of productivity and wider criteria for success. Third, in one key respect, the plan for growth appears to mark a significant philosophical shift from the 2017 industrial strategy. That strategy 
was built around a model of co-creation with the public and private sectors working in partnership on the design and implementation of the strategy. One example here was the local industrial strategies developed by local enterprise partnerships and mayoral combined authorities in partnership with government, drawing on local knowledge and drawing on local skills. The same was true of the so-called sector deals, which involved co-creation between business and government to help crowd in private financing and private investment. And a third topical example of success through public-private partnership was, of course, that Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine program. The plan for growth is silent on local industrial strategies, indeed on sector deals as well. And the council thinks to maximise its chances of success, that co-creation model needs greater emphasis and prominence in the development of the plan for growth, drawing in that expertise from business and from local actors. Fourth, and building on that, it's welcome that the government has made levelling up a centrepiece of the plan for growth. And welcome too are the new funding vehicles for left behind cities and towns, including through the new infrastructure bank. But based on experience, UK and internationally, centrally distributed funding pots are unlikely by themselves to be an effective or lasting solution to the levelling up problem. The best laid plans are those laid locally and which build a broad base of foundations, including investment, education, skills and culture. That requires local institutions and it requires them to have the holy trinity of powers, monies and people. The plan for growth contains too little, we believe, to secure those local foundations and to develop those local institutions. Put simply, you don't level up from the top down. Rather, you level up from the bottom up. The forthcoming white paper on devolution offers an early opportunity to begin that process. And overall, the council believes a comprehensive reorientation of the government's levelling up strategy will be needed to make a lasting success of this crucial objective. Fifth and finally, the Achilles heel of UK supply side policy since at least the Second World War has been their lack of longevity. UK now has its second long-term supply-side plan in four years and its fourth business secretary in two years. The purpose of the Industrial Strategy Council was to help achieve that greater degree of longevity, a role successfully played by the Committee on Climate Change for Net Zero, by the National Infrastructure Commission for Infrastructure. With the demise of the Council from the end of this month, and given the even greater importance of these supply-side policies, which Gemma mentioned, the Council believes the case for an expert independent body playing an evaluative role is stronger than ever. Indeed, ideally, this independent body should be set in statute, making it less susceptible to ministerial whim. Let me just end uh, by thanking members uh, of the council, including, of course, uh, Vivian, importantly, 
their incredible support over the past two and a half years, for the brilliant staff working for the council led by Gavin Wallace, indeed the many people from academia, business, government and think tanks, many of you in the audience today I know, who engaged with us, and indeed who co-created with us a wide and deep body of work to support the government's supply side policies. I hope that body of work from the council, which is listed in the report and which will remain on our website long after we've departed, will leave a large and lasting legacy for those involved in designing and implementing effective supply side policies, which I'm sure we can all agree have never been more badly needed than now. Gemma, with that, let me pass the floor back to you, to Vivian and to Giles. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andy, for that very helpful overview. Vivian, I'd like to come to you next. What are your main takeaways from this latest publication from the Industrial Strategy Council? Thank you, Gemma and Andy, for your uh, remarks and introductions. And Andy, your leadership of the Council really has been uh, exemplary, both in the standard of the analysis and work that uh, you've led and that Gavin and the team have delivered, but also in the independence that it's represented. And you've summarized the position well and, um, and uh, look forward to getting questions and reactions. On behalf of the broader Council, we still have a mindset of practical application both challenging and evaluating the industrial strategy as it was, but also applying that same slide rule to the plan for growth. And from a perspective of uh, across industry, I would highlight three points. First and foremost is the many initiatives that are in place working towards productive growth for the UK need to be quickly joined to the plan for growth. You could easily see in the 142 initiatives that were pre-existing in the previous plan combined with the 180 that are listed in the plan for growth recently published, the complexity already reveals itself. And so I think there is a coordinating mechanism to link with the industrial groups, the trade organizations, leading companies, trade associations. There are a lot of natural collaborators in the business ecosystem as well as the public sphere that could join to quickly um, simplify and coordinate these efforts. The LEP programs, the local economic plans are probably one of the biggest examples where so much effort has gone in locally to thinking about what's right for growth um, with and informed by local players. We don't want that put to the side or left behind and I think we'll see evidence of that in the plan comments on devolution that Andy mentioned, but it's just really important to pick up from where we are um, and not have a sense that we're starting from zero. The issues are simply too substantial to drive economic growth and get the right quality growth for our domestic and international uh, relevance. Um, second, I think from a very practical application, we've talked about three important long-term criteria, scale, longevity, and uh, coordination across public, private, and third sector skills. And we'd encouraged the government to make those explicit criteria in policy planning. Literally, do they meet these criteria? If so, how? If not, why not? So that we're making informed trade-offs ahead of time, not hoping it works after the fact. There are three powerful enablers in the plan for growth that are new, uh, or let me say presented at an even higher level of priority. First is, of course, around leveling up or, if you will, inclusive growth more broadly. Secondly is, of course, greener and uh, a more effective environmental response, but also, of course, more productive as well. And um, uh, global, that it informs and helps 
Britain's global competitiveness in addition to the, the local impacts. And those are important because we've got to build back from the current crisis, but also maintain or ideally improve our international competitiveness and keeping an eye on what's healthy locally for your business, for us nationally, but also where we're going to have relative competitive advantage, I think could involve all six of those criteria, scale, longevity, and coordination. And then of course, does it also deliver more inclusive growth the green um, mandate that's well laid out in the plan for growth and of course our, our relative global position and competitiveness and last but not least in business we often say that you don't um, you can't manage and improve what you don't measure and so this notion of having a slide rule accountability transparency and challenge we think is one of the greatest values of things like the infrastructure commission or the council in its previous mandate and we'd encourage the government and um, all of the collaborators who are working on these initiatives to have the courage to have that independence of view because we know we'll just spot positive patterns and successful lessons like the uh, vaccine case studies that we're publishing today. We'll spot those lessons faster and use and apply them, but we'll also spot mistakes earlier. And in most successful businesses and successful innovations are a function of trial and error, learning quickly and improving. And it's no different when it comes to these supply side policies. And so learning quickly and um, being willing to look at metrics and challenge as we build back better is um, is really critical to success. And, and we just strongly encourage that, that be built into the forward plan for growth. Thank you very much, Vivian. Finally, Giles, let me come to you. You've obviously advised governments in different formats about industrial policy. What's your reaction to what the Industrial Strategy Council is saying today? Yeah, I've been there. I even have the mug from the uh, from the Bayes officials of the time. Very proud. And uh, I'm slightly, me I, must, I must start by saying I'm slightly melancholy to know that the, the mug has outlived the council because I recently found the memo when I was first asked to weigh in on the um, industrial strategy for the Theresa May administration. And it did include the recommendation that we need an external body. I mean, the phrase that was going around then was we need an OBR for industrial strategy to, to get that vital ingredient of longevity commitment and uh, accountability in there because it's difficult policy. Um, as Vivian has just reflected, there's failures and successes. Politicians are very bad at both of those, and you need someone who can adjudicate these things and and um, and help you tell you whether you're going right or wrong. Who's going to be impartial and um, somewhat politically impervious? So I do think that if the government is not going to proceed with the council, as the council itself has put in one of those recommendations, it needs something that can achieve the same thing. But otherwise, my comments. Um, I think this is a fantastic report that anyone who's interested in industrial strategy should read, and it reflects some of the questions that I've grappled with, including writing for the Institute for Government. I mean, number one for me, one of the most difficult ones is objectives that. And we really needed guidance from a body like the Industrial Strategy Council over what the objectives for industrial strategy should be. And partly because there are difficult, different schools of thought and trade-offs to be navigated here. I mean, at one extreme, you say, well, most of the economy works fine. Just prioritise on those areas where it's screamingly obvious that you really do need government intervention. I would say the absolute number one obvious priority, the green and green economy, which is not just going to happen without um, serious government intervention. And also just go for those areas where you can find really high value add, you know, the ultra high tech stuff that's all about R&D and science and high skills and so forth. And at the other end, there's the observation that for most people in the economy hit by 
what must now be 10, 15, 20 years of failing productivity and failing um, uh, wage growth and earnings power, as Greg Clark used to put it, um, you need to have something much broader. I mean, if you want to really improve prosperity through the economy, you need to have something that can hit the median worker who isn't in a high-tech industry, who might not be working in a business that has, ex has taken on all the high productivity techniques you need to, pro to, to prosper, but in which case, how does industrial strategy go after that? And all of this overlaid with the question, sometimes the government can identify something as very important. The vaccine case study is the absolute preeminent example, but it might not always be something that we as a country are good at. I mean, a good example is um, we can all identify that solar power is going to be incredibly important in the next 30, 40 years. But solar panel manufacturing is probably not an area where the UK is going to excel. So again, you need that kind of advice and tough choice making, which needs to be at the heart of industrial strategy. Um, if you're to choose the right kind of overall objectives. And I was looking forward to the Industrial Strategy Council being able to help with some of the sort of tough decisions there. Because it's not all as straightforward as just measuring where you have a high GDP per head and plugging money there. Often it's about a careful interweaving of different um, of, of different qualities, like is this an important sector for other parts of the economy? And I would recommend anybody, um, again, read another Industrial Strategy Council report on effective sectoral um, strategies to look at that. But the other one that slightly bothers me is by stepping away from institutions like this, it's revealing something that is much discussed of this government, which is the sense that it doesn't really have an enduring economic philosophy, ideology approach. And maybe you can blame this on the unique circumstances of Brexit and the COVID pandemic. But I can say that under George Osborne, and before that, even more so with Gordon Brown and Nigel Lawson, like the three really influential chancellors of the last few decades, you kind of knew roughly what the government's overall philosophy was, for right or wrong. You don't have to agree with it, but it helped bind the government together. And now we don't have that. We have something more like some really powerful political slogans like levelling up and making Britain a sort of exporting superstar and quite a lot of enthusiasm, political capital resources. But you don't have a method that ties it together. The Thatcherites had a clear method that the private sector generally worked and privatisation was a key industrial strategy. And there was a more of a sort of investment level horizontals based method under Gordon Brown. I just don't know what it is under this government. And I was hoping that the evolution of the industrial strategy would at least reveal that the mixture of interventionism and competition that you do need if you want to drive the economy further upwards. So. I do hope that whatever comes next, we're going to learn a little bit more about what the government's overall methodology for how it deals with these important um, political objectives. In particular, the final one, and it's an area where I'd love to hear um, both, both Andy and Vivian's thoughts. I understand this point about cooperation. It's really, it is a really valuable improvement on the industrial strategy that is just done to other people from a central vantage point, maybe assuming lots of big data. But how do you manage to do cooperation while maintaining competition in the economy and not just giving a really big incentive for lobbying is a really thorny one for me. It was a feature of sector deals where you're asking people to come together and come up with this plan to work with the government on something. And it's something that we may have lost by leaving the EU single market, which was above all the driver of competition and competitive force. So I'd be really interested to hear how do we continue to have a really pro-competition economic environment while keeping all the benefits of industrial strategic thinking? 
Thank you very much, Charles. That's really useful points. Um, and I'd actually like to put those back to Andy and, and Vivian. So I guess Charles is making three points there. One, which I think is similar to what you've made in your report, that the government lacks clear objectives and therefore the industrial strategy or the plan for growth lacks boundaries and is unfocused. Uh, secondly, do you agree with Giles that it's not clear what this government's guiding economic ideology is? And do you think that does have an impact on the effectiveness of this plan for growth? And thirdly, how, how do you respond to Giles's question about how do we both cooperate with the private sector, but at the same time maintain the need for competition as well? Andy, let me come to you first. Well, I'll be very brief, um, so we have time to get to, to Vivian and indeed to the questions um, from the floor. I think all of Giles's questions are, are rather good ones, uh, and I may be the wrong person to be providing uh, answers to them, um, uh, of course. I'm also delighted he's got his mug. That'll be worth a fortune in years to come, Giles. Hang on to it carefully. Um, to, 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 to some of those, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for Giles's view that um, any strategy or industrial policies need not just be occupying the frontier, the frontier technologies, the frontier industries. Uh, the vast majority of the economy sits inside uh, that frontier, what is sometimes called the foundational economy, which includes you know, great swathes of our service economy, which is you know, three quarters of it. Uh, and the greater part of our uh, smaller and medium-sized uh, enterprise uh, economy. Um, I think it's therefore crucial that when we're thinking about innovation, which rightly is put pretty center stage in the plan for growth, we think about the whole innovation system and not just for those that engage in R&D. That's about the top 60,000 firms. There's then the remaining 98% uh, of firms who aren't engaging in R&D, narrowly defined, but absolutely do need to be part of our innovation uh, ecosystem. I think the Help to Grow initiatives uh, in the plan for growth uh, are a good directional step towards improving management and organizational skills in that 98% of firms, and indeed improving digital infrastructure and skills in that 98% uh, of firms, but there's far, far further to go, I think, to lift that, what elsewhere I've called the, the long tail. To Giles's last question, which I think is a very good one, which is how do we demarcate uh, those areas of activity that are in the sort of cooperative space and those that are in the uh, competitive uh, space? I think there's an easy answer to that question. What I would say, though, and this is encouraging people really to go away and read the, the case study of vaccines that we put out, is that these uh, can sit together cheek by jowl if you do think about the whole supply chain in that structured way. You look across the supply chain for vaccines, there were situations where the partnership or the cooperative uh, model was absolutely essential to getting things done. And there were others, and the production of vaccines was a case in point, where competition among private sector participants underpinned by the advanced market commitments of government was crucial for delivering, in this case, not one, but multiple vaccines at a supercharged speed. So um, I think there's a place for both. And the way to map where both sit is by thinking much more strategically about supply chains than we ever have previously. Let me stop there and pass to Vivian. 
Well, as always, Giles, you know, you've got a tough critique, but I think there are some green shoots. You know, first on this issue of does it have objectives, in some senses, the lateral horizontal investments, which you do see reflected in, you know, re-energizing human capital and skills, which is the highest priority and the clearest I've seen in this agenda, the innovation and the lateral horizontal platform uh, technologies that underpin that in different industries um, and infrastructure, which by their definition are long cycle, medium and, and uh, long term capital investments. They require platform horizontal investments, many of which when you go back in their origins, again, healthcare is a clear example where many of them have public money in research and academic innovation, um, but across many sectors in technology, healthcare uh, services you know, those innovations are brought to market in different ways. So my point is we're trying to do both things, is I think what you'd hope we are able to accomplish here is have more clarity of the right quality investments on the horizontal platforms, some of which will require partnership and government enablement, but then a heck of a lot of competition and innovation by industrial grouping and or location. And we have to be able to manage an asymmetry. It's not all industry or all location or all technology. It's going to be a complex playing board, but we're going to know what the top two or three things are. And when you look at some of the, let's say on a five or 10 year basis, successful job creation plans, um, the Canada Growth Plan, which is in its fourth or fifth year, uh, the Obama uh, Job Creation Plan, which had about six years to run, there are a number of markers that were doing both of those things. Some long-term investments, including things that the public don't naturally have access to or necessarily understand. For example, the satellite network is something that's quite important to invest in now, but it's not very daily or hitting people's household. Um, and so I think we, we, the challenge and opportunity is how can you do both of those things? Make the clear horizontal platform investments, and the net zero plan is probably the strongest articulation of that and also have the agility and application that your sector leaders, your businesses, your towns can tell you what they need locally or what they need specifically for their business. Um, the second thing is, is I think we are particularly publishing and highlighting the multivariate success that's shown in the research, development, uh, scaling, distribution, um, and um, trust built around the vaccine case examples because it's got features of all of these markers. But there are many other examples. If you look at electrification and their scale ups in many uh, supply chains, if you look at food waste, if you look at consumable waste, there's lots of scenarios where doing the right thing, say for the environmental outcomes or um, outcome that you wanna drive or in long-term projects overlaps 100% with uh, opportunities for companies and good competition within that. So I, I think it's a little bit of a false choice Giles, to say that we can't have big strategic platform investments that help the UK win disproportionately relative to anyone else in the world and really healthy competition across companies um, and even regions sometimes to, to go after that growth. So I, I don't think it's always either or. And what we've got to do now is quickly reconcile those two things. You know, not go back two or three years. We are at a foundational moment, literally a once in a generation or potentially once in a century moment in terms of the cumulative challenges facing the global, but the UK economy on a health, economic, um, social fabric and operational basis. So we have to hope that the plan for growth is able to combine both the horizontal 
approaches you described, as well as the sector-specific competition uh, in broader places, of course, across the country. Thank you both. Um, for those who aren't deeply into the weeds of all the many supply-side policies that the government has at the moment, what's each of your take on whether the replacement of the industrial strategy with a plan for growth is, is this largely a marketing exercise or is this a really substantive change? I suppose let's break that down between are we changing the objectives, are we changing the underlying theory of how we can achieve those objectives, are the policies changing or is this mostly a rebranding exercise? Vivian, let me come to you first. Well, I'm certainly not a branding expert, but what I would say is um, I think where the plan for growth is helpful is that it tries to simplify around three um, to six vectors that hopefully we can all stay focused on over time. You know, innovation, uh, particularly if it's fueled by, um, um, excuse me, infrastructure, uh, particularly if it's fueled by a broad range of definitions of infrastructure. So, you know, I, of course, think of big physical projects and, and roadways, but in the infrastructure that's probably most critical is our digital and technological infrastructure, infrastructure at household and firm level, as well as at, at, at uh, sector level. So infrastructure divide, d described broadly, not just shovel-ready projects or the old definition of it. What infrastructure are the investments we need for competitiveness going forward? Skills, um, it's receiving high visibility and priority. It's always an enabler, but as a, a, um, Andy indicated, uh, particularly with the many um, platform-based and services-led advantages that the UK has, really upskilling people who are in work today and making our workforce more agile across our economy and globally is one of the most important competitive advantages we have. And you see that in the higher education sector, same as you see it in, um, in um um, the green agenda and the net zero plans. So there's lots of ways in which our, uh, not only our ability to have a higher skill level and find innovations, but also reskill our population and deploy that um, in strategic sectors. And then finally, innovation. And that will take many forms. Um, and sometimes it'll be just scaling good ideas that we know work as opposed to really inventing something new. Um, but the criteria, I think, are a new lens. Inclusive growth in terms of leveling up, a green with real edge and metrics around that, and of course global in terms of what contributes to our job creation and health and what contributes to our global competitiveness. So there are there is an arc where you could imagine there's a, a simpler presentation of those six things, but tailored to different parts of the country, tailored to different sectors. But the main thing is to stick with it. You know, the scale, longevity uh points are really important here because if we stick with it over time we're probably going to make progress if we chop and change every 18 months we definitely won't thank you giles what's your thoughts on this it's always tempting to indulge in a bit of whitehall criminology when the change happens like this so i'm going to which is that um i don't think this government likes constraints i think a government that gets elected on vote leave take control isn't going to to sort of parody Margaret Thatcher, roll back the constraints from the EU only to reimpose them at a, in, a level here. They don't like constraints, so that means inheriting things that you've got to stick to, commitments, are not their style. Um, what I'm hoping is they realise you need that style if you want to provide certainty to business. There needs to be give and take. It can't all be command and control. So I do think that this has represented their need to um, break free of everything that they inherited and start again. And I think it's a very incomplete work. I think Vivian's been very generous in that, I mean, every government going back at least to the dawn of the internet has had 
four or five big drivers, infrastructure, skills, place, innovation, entrepreneurship, something like that. They said, we need to have policies in all these areas. And I, I haven't yet recognized a, a strategic choice made in this one, apart from the one they made right at the beginning, which, which was let's double the R&D budgets and see what happens. And I would echo all of Andy's concerns there about how pushing the frontier out isn't relevant to 90, 80, of the economy. What you really need is a policy for dragging everyone along to the existing frontier. So I personally think what we've seen is a preeminent treasury grabbing hold of things during a time when there wasn't a great deal of commitment to defend what we currently had. And I do hope that the business department gets to reassert itself and do some of the more strategic, structural, institutionalist thinking that you really need for industrial strategy. Because um, as everyone's been saying, you need commitment and endurability to make this kind of policy area work. Well, and I think sometimes, Giles, we're better off setting the guardrails for ourselves before our uh, investors or, or customers impose it on us. And so I just why I say the government needs a bit of courage to want get more specific and granular about the policies linked to the already good things that are happening. We're heralding a vaccine case study or commenting on the net zero plan. That's building on work that was already done. Those aren't things that were developed in a matter of weeks. Similarly, the rigor and objectivity of having independent review. None of us likes to have a spotlight put on our work with objective fact-based critique. That's uncomfortable by definition, but it's exactly what you need to improve outcomes and competitiveness. So I, I agree with you, Giles, in the sense that the, the point is not that there's been a new restatement, particularly at this seminal moment for our economy, but have the courage to look at just good practices and follow some of those things, which include specificity, quality of big bets and those longevity criteria that Andy laid out, and equally important, marking your progress, including mistakes that we'll all make along the way, to know that we are actually moving in the right direction. Andy, do you want to come in on this one as well? Well, I think uh, Vivian and Giles have made uh, the, the, the points very adequately. Let me just add um, very briefly. I mean, it's clear that in terms of the ends, of the plan for growth and the uh, industrial strategy that they are common. So in that sense, the differences um, in terms of end objective are more uh, semantic than they are substantive. Uh, in that sense, there's perhaps a degree of branding in that. Indeed, the letter that I was sent from the Secretary of State mentioned branding as the, the main reason um, why the council was being abolished. Um, whether there are uh, differences in the means by which those ends uh, are met, I think that is still a more open question in my mind. In some ways, the dropping of the word strategy was is a tad unfortunate uh, because that suggests that you have more than just a list of policies. You've given thought to how those policies interconnect to create a preferred ecosystem for innovation, uh, skills, uh, and ultimately productivity uh, and growth. There's a genuine open, open question about how the moving parts of the plan for growth fit together into something that could be uh, uh, called a strategy. The second uh, aspect of the means, which again is an open question, sort of to, to be developed, is uh, the appetite for interventions at the sectoral level uh, and the approach to tackling issues at a local level. So uh, this goes to the heart of, you know, um, this co-creation notion that I set out at the, in my opening uh, remarks. 
is UK PLC going to be in the business of putting together interventions, sectoral interventions of either a strategic or a defensive nature, uh, the like of which we know are relatively common in other countries around the world and have indeed been pursued with a degree of success? That's a genuinely open question. And what will be the role of local actors, local institutions, local governments, local LEPs uh, in drawing up, formulating and implementing uh, the plan for levelling up? Those are both uh, open questions. The Council's research uh, and indeed uh, others' experience provides relatively clear answers to those questions. What's not clear from the plan for growth is whether those are going to be put in place or not, I think. Thanks, Andy. Drawing on then from where you started your answer, this question come in from Anna Wallace of the COVID Recovery Commission, asking what skills does government need to implement this kind of strategic thinking? Do they already exist? And if they don't, how can they be built and where should they be built within government? Giles, let me come to you first on that one. Uh, hi, Anna. Good to have you in the audience. Um, tough question. Um, the standard skills that you often hear people complain about not being there, certainly longevity in the same job sometimes. I mean, that, that great former industrial strategist, Michael Heseltine, used to complain about how you didn't have people who had been embedded in industry and in government. I mean, we benefited from the tail end of some of the great officials he left behind under Vince Cable, where some of the people who were working for us, helping to try and keep a car factory staying in the UK, seemed to know the um, internal organisation of the US car company better than the US car company did, and it kept the car company going. So those, that deep industrial knowledge that enables that kind of cooperation that Andy has spoken about today is number one. You'll always hear people talking about data and so forth. I'm, I'm, there's no harm in having better data skills. I'm slightly worried about the caricature of industrial strategy creates, which is like if you put enough information into a central algorithm, the right answer will be spat out. So a lot of people are going to call for better data skills, more scientists, fewer human, humanities people. I don't want to add to that, actually. I'd, I'd rather people who are really well networked with industry uh, as, as the number one skill I would choose. Andy or Vivian, do you want to add to that? Well, Anna, I think the tip is in the name, collaboration, co-labor, to work together um, to drive an outcome that ideally neither party or parties in a system could have achieved on their own. And there are some things like uh, climate reduction, net more uh, inclusive growth, uh, geographic as well as um, household wage basis that you simply can't solve for as government by itself or as any company or sector by itself. So finding the areas where we know we are better served by collaboration, either because the answer is expensive, complex, the time frame, and as I said, you know, the food waste, electrification, many of the environmental goals, um, skill diversity um, in local communities are all really good examples where we have to work together to come up with the right answer and then secondly, consistently implement it. But I really stress this point about implementation. Once you've made your choice, so let's say strategy is a set of choices. It's not just a set of options. It's priorities and choices. What do you do once you've made a choice? Well, you resource allocate resources against it. You get the right people behind it. You check and measure whether you're on track. You stay the course, you know, even when the wind blows. And so the skill sets are ones that I think we have, but it's going to be a lot about once we've made choices, really implementing them consistently across different talent. It's not anything that I think government or the private sector 
you know, can do without the other. And, and the biggest, most positive examples we've seen of that, of the change over time, you know, like the vaccines case study, you know, involves skills from, from all sides. Go ahead, Andy. Oh, well, um, I mean, I was going to echo really um, the points that Giles made. Um, I mentioned that it'd been hard, actually impossible to track down where 15% of the industrial strategy policies from 2017 had gone. And the reason for that is that there's no one really in the machine that was around when they were put together. Um, and that is, uh, given that, you know, in industrial policy terms, four or five years is not a great deal of time, really. Um, and that's that lack of um, institutional knowledge uh, of experience, I think, does cost us dear when it comes to putting in place tracking and sticking with our knitting when it comes to these uh, policies. And that, I think, it true is, across, is a true right across uh, Whitehall. The other attribute I think that I would like to see more of is, again, this almost goes to my philosophical point from earlier. Uh, in this area in particular, where basically it's about providing the framework within which the private sector flourishes, uh, that calls for a reorientation about and how you think about policy. It's not like, you know, monetary policy, where you're doing something to someone in the setting of an interest rate. In this area, it's about doing policy with someone, um, about understanding their perspectives, learning from their, uh, their perspectives and building on uh, their incentives. So, you know, the crucial um, uh, asset of being able to listen rather than talk and be net, well networked with your those you are co-creating with, knowing business, lo, knowing local players, I think is absolutely crucial. And that is tricky with people who have relatively little experience under their belt. So I think Giles's two big points actually uh, go together. Thank you. And this next question is pretty mainly aimed at you, so I'll put it to you first. It's come from Alison Hunter, who asks that you mentioned levelling up in poorer areas powered by digital transformation and the scope for more flexible working from home. How do you think that can be achieved when the baseline of performance in those areas in some of these places is so poor? Yeah, thanks, Alison. And that's a, I mean, it's a very good um, uh, uh, challenge. I mean, the, the point I was making, that I didn't have a chance to elaborate in my opening comments, although section two of the report does elaborate on this, is that um, in a world where more of us can work on a virtual distributed basis, uh, and I mean not just um, workers, but businesses as well, uh, that does give us that you know, geography becomes somewhat less important than it had previously. Those agglomeration benefits of economies of, uh, of scale and scope that exist for our super cities become somewhat less powerful uh, and therefore the scope to revitalize our local uh, towns uh, and less well-performing cities uh, is is that much greater um, provided we handle this in, in a canny and careful fashion so that was the kind of thought experiment really i'm not sounding the death knell for our cities far from it there will still be a magnet for skills and finance and commerce and a rightly so but is there the chance you know, to think about a slightly more even distribution uh, of jobs, where jobs are done and where businesses are located than was the case pre-COVID? That strikes me as uh, relatively more likely. Uh, if that is to happen, though, we will have to invest as never previously 
uh, in both our digital estates uh, and in our digital skills to make a reality of that, but for, for, for both workers and organizations. Uh, so in that sense, I, I very much welcome, I think, what is the strongest plank of the plan for growth, which is its investment in infrastructure. But it will require a bit more than that, because what we're really talking about is a change in cultures and a change in behaviors in how we work as workers and how businesses work as organizations. And that is still, I would say, work in train. Thank you. Um, as you have all, I think, pointed out, this is an area of policy that requires long-term thinking. I think nothing happens overnight in this area. And so the question from Keith MacDonald is, how do you get voters and therefore politicians to think long-term and avoid the day-to-day -day distractions? Um, he asked, do we need better public education on some basics of economics, which I'm, I'm sure my answer would always be yes to that. Um, but if it, for Andy and Vivian, is this something that you as the Industrial Strategy Council also thought about, how you engage with the public on these topics and build that understanding of the need for long-termism in this area? Vivian, let me come to you first. Well, I think we've always, uh, with the good work of Gavin and the entire team um, that Andy led, tried to make it digestible and understandable at a normal business discussion, normal household level. Most people do understand complex topics, but they understand them in simple terms. So when you say our households, uh, I won't say voters particularly, but if you just think about the average family and the average household able to understand these issues, not in dense, complex academic or economic language, but if you talk about a living competitive wage, if you talk about access to a high quality education, if you talk about the number of years or the effort that's required to develop and add to your skill set so that you can go on to do a slightly different job. If you talk about moving to a sustainable level of rent or God forbid buying your home so that you begin to build asset wealth in addition to sustainable income, everybody understands that. Um, wanting your children to have more opportunities than you've had. And so I think what we've got to do, particularly when we link this to um, local economic strategies is make the long-term um, capabilities can build uh, benefits in terms of skills, access, and income, and uh, higher quality jobs at household level. And that common sense translation of supply-side policies into what it means at household level is a very valuable test of whether it really makes sense. Thank you. Andy, do you mind, Dad? Yeah, I, 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 funnily enough, I think it's easier um, to, to make economics every day on this bundle of issues than it is in many other areas of public policy. So if, if someone uh, asks me in the street, which they rarely do, to be honest, what is industrial strategy all about, Andy? I say, basically, it's uh, good jobs uh, at a good wage everywhere. That's what it's about. And as put, you know, what's complicated about that? And that underscores why this is all, of course, so important. If you want to drill down a layer, so layer two is, well, it's actually about, you know, it's about having a decent high street, uh, green spaces, uh, decent schools, uh, reliable public transport, you know, all the stuff that is the meat and drink, the food and drink of people's everyday lives. So absolutely, the public ought to be engaged in this debate. And absolutely, we should seek to communicate in words and sentences that make sense to how we might improve their everyday uh, lives. That's a criticism of, of my profession, of the economics profession, but also of the policymaking community. And there's loads more we could have done had we had more time. 
to reach larger parts of the population because they will absolutely get the importance of this uh, to their everyday lives if we describe it in the right ways. Thank you. Uh, possibly our, our final question we're going to have time for and drawing on a question that's come in from Will Lord. I mean, your, your very interesting second paper today looking at the what we can learn from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine example. You make the point that this is a case where there was a clear mission and that there may be future examples where there is that sort of mission driven objective where government can mobilise at great scale to have that sort of very effective uh, outcome. So the question really is the the vaccine was an unusual circumstance where we had a very pressing public policy need. Um, can you think of other examples where that sort of mission-oriented objective might might play out again, or, or how should government decide on what those missions are, where they should really galvanise their efforts and drive down from the top of government to achieve the sort of success that we saw with the vaccine development? Andy, let me come to you first. Yeah, I think you're basically spoilt for choice on this, Gemma. I mean, the real trick is to slim the number of missions because if you end up with 58 missions or 180 missions, you're probably overshot. So I think in a way, the um, the tricky thing is to exert a degree of discipline. But um, net zero could and perhaps should be thought about in mission-led terms. Uh, Leveling up could, could and perhaps should be thought about in mission uh, led terms. Patho Descupta did a review for government a few weeks ago uh, on uh, the importance of natural capital and biodiversity. If we are to make good uh, on preserving and protecting our natural capital, that too would be a, a mission-led uh, type pursuit. You could extend that you know, to the world of work. We talk in our report about the importance not of having your idiosyncratic skill-based policies, but having an overarching labour market strategy, strategy for the labour market in all its many and various forms. In the light of the metaphors of demography and technology and sustainability, but also in the light of COVID, which has thrown up some extra challenges to the markets for jobs. So for me, the tricky thing here is not to think of other examples where this Loaves and Fishes miracle can be pulled off, but to slim the number of miracles because certain sure only a limited number can in practice be effectively implemented any one time. Because it's interesting, perhaps a little more challenging and I guess Vivian and Giles perhaps you can pick up on this. It's, it's something like developing a vaccine for a specific disease. That is a very precise mission that they got behind and delivered. Something like levelling up is a very amorphous concept with multiple different outcomes that you might be aiming at and huge numbers of different policies that might get you towards that objective. So I suppose what I'm asking is how would you advise government to pick that much more precise mission that they should get behind if they should um, and then deliver it? I've got an answer. I mean, one absolute no-brainer is climate change. The problem all along has been that climate change if it was like a meteorite that was going to hit us in 2050, we would have organised extremely effectively towards all the steps you need to take. The trouble is it's diffuse, it's got classic coordination problems and free rider problems. Most things outside of war are not like the vaccine development story. But we do, as Andy said, we're spoilt for choice. And the problem is you get a political economy going within Whitehall where everyone wants to be part of the thing. So we created grand challenges. 
under the um, under the previous industrial strategy. Things that we knew were going to happen that we had to organise for, but none of them were. You better have it done by Christmas, which is the, the nature of the vaccine challenge. And the problem was stopping everybody saying, "Hey, I've got a thing. Can I have a grand challenge for it?" Because you soon have a proliferation, no prioritisation. Lesson one from this report. Well, and I also think we misunderstand how the, the vaccine. Um, gets developed. You know, it's on a platform of capabilities that are around um, a suite of uh, molecules and capabilities, research and R&D that is a, approaching a wide range of targets. And we were able to focus very quickly within this. It's on a genetic uh, data set and capability that the UK have that is genuinely world leading. It is on a number of uh, development and distribution supply chains, as Andy highlighted earlier, that were pre-existing and as resilient. And all this shock has done is proven to the world how resilient and competitive they are. They existed before the shock came. And although it's not met the same quantum as the COVID impact on our lives and on the economy, um, it's also delivered, helped, helped to and delivered many other things through adjuvants, uh, Ebola, SARS, MERS, British science has played a huge part uh, in that, both in its um, creation here in the UK and also in the British talent that works around the world. So the outcome we see in that case study, and it's still ongoing as we speak, is really a function of many capabilities that were able to be coordinated in the right way at this urgent time. Absolutely agree that climate change and net zero is one of those. Absolutely agree that leveling up over time is one of those, particularly if you broaden the definition to include other types of economic inclusion, which can include women in the economy. It could include educational levels in certain areas really get tailored for how our cities need to grow. That's one of the big differences between the UK's industrial progress relative to a US um, Germany, China, even France, where our regions have not grown as much. And that is a generational challenge that we can fix, um, particularly with technology platforms. And finally, I do think this global competitiveness is an intergenerational challenge. That does not mean we only do the big things, but we look at, we test everything against how does it build skills and critical mass on our um, economic security and other types of strategic competitiveness globally because the UK is an agile, flexible, mid-sized economy that mid-sized country with an outsized economy and impact in the world. And so if we want to keep that multiplier, we have to think about our global competitiveness. But all three of those are great examples of intergenerational challenges that if we applied the same um, uh, principles that we're laying out in the uh, annual report to those, just those three, just those three. That would give us more than enough to work on um, through the lens of uh, the, the plan for growth or whatever you want to call it going forward. But we have to have the courage to measure our progress, have the right uh, input and output metrics and benchmark it relatively in the country and relative to others because you can um, uh, be running very quickly but not winning the race. And that's a very important for the UK to keep in mind, I think, is that we don't want to make progress. We want to make absolute and relative progress in these important areas. Thank you all very much. Unfortunately, we are now over time. So thank you all very much for joining us. And particular thanks to Andy and Vivian Giles for joining us for today's discussion and hope to see you again very soon at another IFG event. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. 
And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.